Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join us on the show today. Now, if you've been following the episodes in sequence, it will not have escaped your notice that uh, as far as, you know, so far rather, we've been aligning the topics to sections in my book, the Property Investor Toolkit. However, I have noticed that um, an extra couple of topics would be useful to include in this first series that were not explicitly included in the book. Well, they weren't included as separate sections, at least. Now, the first of these we shall go through today and then another one next week. So fresh content just for you, if you like, uh, and it rewards your loyalty for sticking with us for so long. Okay, Kaza, how are you today and what's happening? Hi, Richard. I am right on the money, thanks. Although. I did see someone make a comment in a forum that they were not so sure about my contribution to the show. So, I suppose I am feeling a little down in the data dumps about that to be honest with you. Never mind, I heard a quote recently that if you are not being criticized, then you are probably not trying so try I will, lol. Briefly then, we can look forward to lots of great content related to money and funding our property investments. Richard, you are about to share with us the main ways to fund our investments in property chatter. Then, in your voice we have a short and sweet listener review. Finally, three for the price of one resources in the shout out to look forward to as well. Not bad is it? Lots of Brucey bonuses in this bonus episode to the first series. So, back to you Richard. Do you still have your pebbles and buckets after last week's show? Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Well, thanks for your concern, Kazza. Um, yes, yes, I do still have my pebbles and buckets, thank you. Um, I thought they were very illustrative for what is actually an audio format after all. But um, we shall have to see what the listeners made of it before passing any final judgment. Are, are you still with us out there, listeners? <laughs> but on, on a more serious note, um, it seems that somebody has had a go at our lovely Kaza, have they? Uh, well, don't worry, Kaza. I have heard plenty of high praise about you over the course of the series, I can tell you. But, um, but that all said, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Who likes Kaza then? Do we have anyone prepared to step up and defend her honour out there? If so, speak up and bite back if you are. <laughs> sorry about the joke. Oh dear, sorry, I better get my serious head back on. Um, but yes, uh, on b- back to the topic in hand. We do have some serious co- content to go through this week. And it's, a, it's another topic related to money. And uh, it's all about funding our investment properties. So, so here goes. Now, despite what, what most people, say, well, not most people actually, despite what some people say, to invest in property, we will actually need some investment funds. Um, you know, most of the time at least. And in today's episode, I, I plan to give an overview of the main methods of funding a, an investment property. 
However, it's such a such a large topic. I, I may return to it at uh, at a later date in a future series. But suffice to say, for today, I'm going to cover an overview of the of the subject. Now, investment property financing has come a long way. Until 1996, there was no such thing as a buy-to-let mortgage. Most investment property was bought using cash or commercial financing from banks. And uh, commercial finance was generally not widely available, and so the idea of, of buy-to-let was not really you know, commonplace with the average man on the street, so to speak. But in 1996, the, the term buy-to-let was actually coined as a marketing term by ARLA, the Association of Residential Letting Agents. And it was a specific description of, fi of financing properties which would be rented out uh, effectively in the private rented sector. Now, this initiative, along with the abolishment back in the late 80s of the Rent Act, gave birth to what is, is now known as buy-to-let and the private rented sector. Or, or rather, it's, 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 it's mushroomed, exploded the private rented sector. Obviously, there was one before, but it certainly led to the significant growth and, and a renaming of the sector. And it, it meant that individuals could own property and rent them out far more easily than they could in the past. And since then, the private rented sector has grown steadily from from less than 10% of all properties uh, back then in, in uh, mid-90s to nearly 20% today. And that, that's a doubling of the size of the of the sector in a relatively short period of time. And not, not forgetting of which, and of course, this, is, this requires quite a significant amount of investment. One of the most in, in, inexpensive things that uh, you can invest in, in uh, from a private individual point of view, at least, in the, in the UK. And, and the biggest loser, if you like, which, you know, which fell by the wayside was social housing. And, and that was really because public funding was gradually reduced over the same period. And added to which more recent, well, more recently, home ownership levels have started to slide. They did rise and they peaked at around about the 70% mark uh, before the last housing crash in 2008. But since then, with the Mortgage Market Review, or MMR as it's called, in the residential market and, uh, and, and, and less investment available in the social rented sector, buy-to-let has taken up most of the slack with individual private landlords account accounting for the large majority of, of properties in the private rented sector. And according to the National Landlords Association, some 70% of these properties are owned by what are classed as, as amateur landlords. Um, it's a bit ambiguous what is the definition of amateur landlords, but essentially it's, uh, it's a landlord where they don't earn all of their money from investing in property and indeed have a small portfolio, probably less than three properties. So I think that's the definition in, in all honesty. So it's quite, it's quite a large number and, and many of these, of course, would have uh, gained access to the market through the changes I've just referred to. So the coming together of finance products, along with the shortage of supply in the rented sector, effectively gave birth or, you know, mushroom growth to a whole industry. And uh, sometimes, of course, it's attracted controversy, but uh, debate is, but that debate is rather is for, is for another day. So today it's all about how we can get involved in property investing and the options that are available to fund our investments. So, so let's start by looking at the main options um, when it comes to funding our investment property. And um, what I have in front of me, which obviously you, you'll have to picture in your own mind's eye, is, is a table. And effectively, uh, imagine three columns in a table. And I'm going to label that the funding source or funding method, the key benefits, 
and the main limitations. So I'm not going to go into great depth, but I do plan to rattle through uh, eight different categories of funding source. Uh, so the rows are the eight different um, categories and the columns are the obviously the, the, the funding source itself, the key benefits and the main limitations. So if you can just capture that picture in your mind's eye, it just might make it a little bit easier uh, as you listen to me go through and explain, if you like, the, the key benefits and limitations of, of each particular funding source. So, And of course, the show notes is going to have the table, so uh, something for you to go and have a look for um, afterwards. But uh, let, let's start with probably the obvious one um, in terms of funding and investment property. Um, in fact, a lot of people don't think of it as the obvious one, but it actually is, and it was certainly historically the case, that it's cash. Of course, you can buy a property using our own funds. And of course, the key benefit of that is that uh, we alone decide you know, what kind of investment we're going to make. No one's controlling what we do. We just take that decision. It's a yes or a no for us. Nobody else is basically saying what we can or we can't do with our own money. But um, there's no restrictions on, on how it's invested. And of course, we can use some bargaining power through speed of closing a transaction. So, you know, if you've ever, ever just listen, you know, watch somebody approach an estate agent or, or a vendor and use the word, well, I'm a cash buyer. Um, you know, it brings about a um, sense of urgency. It means, you know, people can get out and get on with their lives a lot quicker. And so, of course, that comes, uh, comes with that some bargaining power. And so that's the main, they're the main benefits, if you like, uh, of using cash. But on the flip side, some of the limitations are that, um, it, it's finite, finite. There's a limit in the amount of cash. Pretty much anybody's got available for that matter, even if your name is Lord Sugar. So, um, you know, at some point in time, we are going to run out. And of course, another key benefit, which I've highlighted in, in one of the previous episodes as property as, property as an investment is there's no benefit of leverage with cash. You know, the cash we use is the cash we use and there's no leverage effect by adding in other people's money into the equation. And of course, um, you know, cash is not a tax efficient strategy. Now we, I've said before that we shouldn't, you know, use tax to um, drive what we do in property, but uh, there are certain benefits of financing that uh, are more tax efficient. And of course, one of the limits of cash is that it is not so is not so tax efficient. So after cash, what might be the next stage potentially that we could look at? Now, I'm not saying the most common, but the next, and um, and that's probably friends and family. And um, I mention it next because it's also you know, kind of a friendly source, if I can call it that. Uh, a friendly lender, it, it, it's often flexible because we can agree terms that uh, are agreeable with, uh, you know, somebody who is, you know, closer to us and understands us and, and, and hopefully trusts us. They wouldn't be giving us our mo- uh, sorry, their money if they didn't trust us, for sure. And of course, it's also fast, you know, assuming that they're also using cash um, to, to help fund our investments. And, and at this point in time, it's probably worth highlighting that from now onwards, all of these, um, you know, funding sources are effectively using other people's money. So in this case, the friend's friend or the family member is the other person. So with cash, it was all our own money. And now we start to look at, you know, bolting on other people's money. But there are some flip sides, you know, to the friends and family um, side. And, and one of them is, uh, is probably the most obvious, which is potential damage to the relationship. You know, things were to go wrong, you know, it could put some strain. Um, and of course, it's still limited in amount. And even, you know, two Lord Sugars is still going to have a limit in terms of the amount of cash that they will have available. 
And there's an element of risk transfer which uh, which passes from us to the friend or family member, which you know can, can you know can be a bit difficult if things were to go wrong. So we're not we're then involving you know someone close to us, a relative, in our own investment decision making capabilities. So you know uh, it can put strain on the relationship, but it can also put you know even if there's no strain on the relationship, it could put someone in a bit of a difficult spot. So we do need to be careful that uh, if we're following this route to to do extra due diligence really because it's not just our money in this case or in indeed an institution who's used to looking at uh, investment propositions you know it is, is, is actually somebody known to us so we need to take extra due diligence in this case so once we've uh, considered our own cash reserves and potentially I'm not saying we, we always go and look to friends and family next but it, I mentioned it second because it's it's a, it's a friendlier source but so the, the most common route is one I've already mentioned in the introduction really and that's a, a buy to let mortgage uh, you know and I've, I've kind of explained where that came about now the the benefit really of using a, a buy to let mortgage is that if you like it's it's conventional and it's established I mean admittedly for only what 20 years but it, it is a, a, an established part of the uh, of the of the of the industry now, and so that's a, that's a good option. And of course, there's plenty of lenders out there now. It's quite competitive. I, I seem to think it was upwards of 40 different lenders and upwards of uh, several hundred actually different products available now. So there's lots of competition. There's lots of lenders and lots of funds available. So there are the benefits. And and think the other thing is it's actually relatively speaking cheap. Um, buy to let lending of late is not quite as cheap as residential home um, lending mortgages but it's still very cheap as we'll see later on when we go into a little bit more depth but on the on the downside i guess that there are there are certain restrictions and and one of those restrictions is on the loan what's called the loan to value so how much the lender will lend you as a percentage of the purchase price is the loan to value Another factor, of course, is the lender criteria. So a lender will look at the proposition, they will look at you, and they will decide whether they like you or they don't. And I'm going to go into the lender criteria a little bit more later. And and you know the other thing is that it's it's sometimes unsuitable for certain investment uh, propositions. Uh, and again, we'll see that later on. So if it's fairly standard, it'll be okay. But under non-standard situations, it's not always the best route to follow. Next up, we get the commercial finance as a route. Now, of course, pre the buy-to-let era, uh, financing era, commercial finance was the de facto um, source of funding if it wasn't cash. And uh, and so it's well established. You know, I guess that's uh, that's the point there. There's a large pool of lenders. There's not actually as probably as many as the uh, buy-to-let lenders because a lot of mortgage providers also offer buy-to-let. Commercial lenders is the banks and, and a lot of financial institutions. But so there's a large pool of lenders and it's um, it's suited, you know, particularly to commercially orientated projects. So um, it's slightly different from buy-to-let. You can use commercial lending with, you know, resi residential purchases. But, you know, when we start to look at alternative investment propositions, commercial lending perhaps comes into its own, as we shall see. Similarly, on the downside, as with buy-to-let, there are restrictions, and uh, one of those restrictions is, again, loan-to-value. So it's very rare to get the full project funded. Uh, in fact, commercial lending is probably slightly less generous, in fact, than uh, buy-to-let lending on average. There are obviously variations between lenders. Similarly, there's lender criteria, and, and lenders set their own individual criteria, so it makes it quite difficult to work out who's the best lender for any given proposition. 
And, um, and commercial finance is often restricted. It's a bit of a limited market for what's called experienced investors. So a first time investor might struggle to get an approval from a commercial finance provider. So um, a bit of a, you know, experience under the belt is required to, to access this particular marketplace. The next category I've got here is uh, is bridging finance or or auction finance, and they're kind of the same, even though that perhaps they're given different names. Um, they're they're effectively short-term lending products, and so the benefit, if you like, of uh, bridging finance or auction finance is that it's fast. I mean, obviously, if you're buying at auction, many auctions require completion within 28 days. Some are slightly shorter, in fact. Uh, some of them are slightly longer, but you know, on average, it's about 28 days. So that's that's pretty quick. And so conventional buy-to-let lending is pro, you know, it's very unlikely going to get that approved and, and drawn down in 28 days. Now, there's usually more relaxed criteria. And we'll look at this in more depth later on because the, um, the lender is more concerned with the property than they are with the, the, uh, the actual borrower. So that's the reason. And it's well suited to short-term projects. And we'll see the reasons for that later on. But if you've got a short-term project, you know, bridging finance, auction finance is, is possibly well suited. Now, it um, it could be expensive. Certainly, if we look at the interest rates, we'll see that later on that they're they're a lot higher as an annual rate when compared with uh, some of the other men- uh, property financing solutions I've mentioned uh, earlier. But uh, expensive is one of those words I say. Well, it depends because if you're in and out of a project in three months, then what's expensive if it's a higher annual rate, it doesn't necessarily mean the, the cost of financing over a short period of time is really that high. So expensive by interest rate terms, yes, but not necessarily when you look at the actual total project life cycle. Now, there, are, there is one particular aspect here that comes into play. And, and actually, to be honest, I meant to mention it earlier with commercial finance on the downside, is that um, the lender always has their own legal people uh, advising them. So we've got our legal people and the lender has their legal people. And that basically means two things. It slows the process down and it also adds to the cost because quite nicely, the lender passes on their legal bill to us as the borrower. So there's some hidden fees in that. And, uh, and, and that can come about. So the, the, it can be, and, and the lender here as well, the bridging lender, they, they've got a reputation perhaps being a little bit more brutal if things go wrong. So maybe the earlier examples you could negotiate, but with uh, Bridger, you can negotiate, but they can be brutal and they've got pretty onerous terms and conditions. So then we've got what I call new or disruptive lenders. Um, so, you know, so far we've been talking really about institutional uh, lenders, uh, the banks and, and high street lenders and, and, and other financial institutions. But, you know, when I say disruptive lenders, you know, this whole sharing economy is emerging. And um, some examples of this are peer-to-peer lending and indeed crowdfunding. So they're, they're new and they're emerging and, and they're somewhat unknown. We'll come to that in a minute. But on the positive side, it's an emerging lender pool, which um, might potentially fit the right risk and rewards of projects to suitable investors. So that, that's quite good. You know, so if we've got a high risk project and a high, uh, an investor looking for a high risk or high return, maybe they're quite well matched. So I think as a marketplace, it's quite a good idea. The, the idea, of course, is that it's, uh, it's the digital age and the sharing economy. And so uh, that can lead to online applications. So um, it just streamlines things. There's no you know, interview with the bank manager type of thing required here. So, so that's another potential benefit. 
But on the downside, they are, at the moment at least, in my experience, they're still very much bank criteria driven. So a lot of these people have come from the banking industry who are working as credit underwriters and, and senior people in and, and a lot of these uh, crowdfunding uh, and peer-to-peer -peer lenders. And so they're still doing underwriting and they're still taking credit checks. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of a differentiation that's that's required for this market to mature and really distinguish itself. But needless to say, they, they exist and um, they have limited experience um, in, in the sector and obviously limited funding resources as well. They're, they're not they're not as big as the big banks. They don't have the same ability to leverage, you know, from savings and deposits to grow their investment funds as the banks do. So, you know, obviously the funds are limited and so they're scarce. And uh, as I mentioned, as I've alluded to, they're not really yet differentiated from the mainstream just yet. But I probably expect that to change over the next few years. So that's definitely one to keep an eye on. And, uh, you know, what would be really interesting is if they've got uh, no credit application uh, or sorry, no credit underwriting and this sort of thing or higher loan to value, um, you know, different propositions which might make it uh, a more appealing to a property investor. And I'm sure all that's going to come at a cost, but it will be uh, a niche in the market, one, one to watch. The next category I've got listed here is private finance and uh, private finance includes joint venture finance partners. Now, friends and family could be an example of private finance or joint ventures, but I've decided to put it as a separate heading because uh, what I'm really talking about here is people you know, outside of that circle. So people we might network with, for example, or there are some smaller boutique lenders who uh, put you can put you in touch with uh, high net worth uh, individuals to to lend on certain transactions. So that's that's what I'm talking about here. Now they're potentially more personal because obviously they're individuals, even if there is an organisation that fronts them. So they they might be looking at more personal criteria. They may be more flexible uh, and and fast actually in 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 the way they operate. So they're definite plus points. And I think the other thing is that because they're non bank lenders, their credit terms could be you know more attractive and uh, that's something to to consider also but as with the uh, limitations elsewhere there are certain limitations with uh, these providers too and, and and probably the biggest one is cost they're you know private lenders probably looking for a decent return on their investment you know for an individual property lending or lending to an investor might be seen as a higher risk and so they're looking for higher return as well but um you know finding the partners finding these people is also not easy um you don't just walk out and see a a shop you know on the high street which says private lenders are us and and walk in and immediately get a bunch of financing uh, no they they're harder to find of course and uh, and then of course we've got to negotiate individually with them we pretty much know what we're getting with the uh, high streets uh, high street banks and that sort of thing but with these private lenders, you know, it's it's up to them, you know, what they're looking for and, and different things will appeal to different individuals. So a, a personalized conversation and negotiation is required. And and, and probably a little bit like the bridging lenders, the uh, terms and conditions that they will require and potentially the level of security and disclosure might be quite high. They might be looking for guarantees, additional security. Um, they may be have rights to walk in your position if things go wrong. So it can be pretty heavy handed if it were to go wrong. So there's a plus side, but there's also a downside uh, with some of this lending source. 
And then the final, you know, source, if you like, I've got mentioned here. And when I say it, you're going to realize I'm not going to go into a lot of depth, but it's what I call creative financing strategies. And that's things like rent to rent, lease options, uh, installment credits, uh, sorry, installment contracts and that type of thing. So I'm not really going to go into a lot of depth because they're effectively creative, uh, sorry, creative property strategies in their own right. And um, I think I think it's worth going to more depth on a later episode. But I want to flag it because it's worth it's worth mentioning here that uh, in many cases the one of the, you know, the advantages that there's either low or no uh, own funds requirement with these types of strategy. And you know if if you ever hear about the uh, property investment community and courses and training and this sort of thing, you're going to hear a lot about rent to rent and lease options as being you know no money down or no money left in type of deals. So you know, it's true that uh, the entry level for funding with uh, these strategies is is low, or it can be it can be low. So that, of course, allows us to have maximum leverage. You know, low funds in for at least controlling an asset. Uh, sometimes controlling and owning in the future an asset. So so that's a definite benefit. Uh, the other one, of course, is uh, pretty much the uh, credit standing or credit rating of the investor concerned is 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 pretty much irrelevant. Uh, unless, of course, the uh, other side of the transaction decides it is important, but generally speaking, they won't. They want to know that they're going to get their money, and uh, and so on. So that's the plus side. the The downside is it's uh, it's still very much an unregulated area, and um, you know a bit a little bit like a few years ago, we had a scandal, if you like, in what's called sale and rent back, where people were buying homes off. Uh, people in fairly dire situation and renting it back to them immediately. So they didn't move out. They stayed in their own property, but they'd sold it to an investor. And, uh, you know, a lot of cases, well, not a lot of cases, but certainly in some cases, some of these uh, people were vulnerable and they were taken advantage of. So that became regulated. But uh, rent to rent, for example, if I just mention that particular area, is not a regulated uh, area at the moment. And, um, you know, when there's no regulation and there's high uh, opportunity, you know, there there is sometimes opportunity for things to go wrong. So similarly, you know, finding finding suitable funding sources, which is basically people willing to offer these properties with these creative strategies, is going to be a challenge, just like with private investors or joint venture partners. And um, and and often the structures are a bit complicated and and therefore difficult to explain to vendors and uh, and other property owners and um, and therefore to gain acceptance. So they're the downside. So if I can summarize some of the some of the top tips really to take away from this is that we're going to need at least some money money to invest in property. And even if someone tells us about no money down deals, but this money doesn't always have to be our own money. Uh, the concept of other people's money is what I've been mentioning for most of those uh, strategies. But a word of caution, uh, we must uh, disclose the source of any deposit funds to, to lenders, uh, traditional lenders, uh, to avoid any risk of, uh, of mortgage fraud. So um, a lot of lenders won't allow us to uh, use borrowed funds as a source of deposit. Or if they do, they'll, um, you know, they certainly won't want any uh, security taken on on the purchase property, on the property rather that's being purchased. Word of caution there, really. And um, and some form of uh, of lending is actually preferable if we want to get uh, some valuable leverage, of course. So the cash, we just, you know, we don't have any leverage, but all the other options, there is some leverage, and of course that can help grow and multiply our returns. Now, the, some lending sources are particularly well suited to certain types of projects as well. So we just need to make sure that we, we try and align the funding source to the project concerned and indeed our own personal circumstances.
And then some of the advanced strategies that I kind of just touched on right at the end are really not for the faint-hearted and uh, you know an awful lot of due diligence is required before we uh, dive into that too deeply. Okay, so despite there being at least eight alternative uh, funding methods that I've alluded to, uh, and in fact there's quite there's quite a few sub methods if I can call them that rent to rent lease options installment credits uh, <laughs> installment contract is what I meant to say um, you know to fund our investment property by far the most common are buy to let mortgages commercial finance and uh, bridging finance or auction finance as it's uh, sometimes called so so let's just have a quick look at uh, at those characteristics of those three now again I've got a table in front of me. And if you can imagine, I've got some a list of criteria down the left-hand side. I've got four columns. I'm going to look at buy-to-let, commercial loans or lending, and bridging finance as the three additional columns to the right. Now, I'm not going to go uh, individually, line by line, but I'm just going to highlight, if you like, some of the differences in some of the criteria. So, starting with what's called loan-to-value. So, again, this is percentage of the purchase price that the lender is willing to advance. It's called loan-to-value. So, the the... Often the most generous is going to be a commercial lender. Um, not a lot of difference, to be honest, between that and buy to let. Um, you know, up to 80% with buy to let, slightly more maybe with a commercial lender, 85 at a push, but there won't be many lenders doing either the 80% for the buy to let or the 85% with the commercial lender. So, you know, starting out 40, 50% loan to value and going up to that level. Things are very different now than they were in 2007, and there was even a case of 120% finance, uh, loan-to-value rather, at that point. But um, bridging and auction finance slightly less generous, so probably a maximum of 70% of the purchase price in that case. It's possibly worth mentioning with a commercial lender that sometimes you can have a valuation based on what's called bricks and mortar, which is kind of the purchase price, or alternatively, it could be what's what's called an investment value. So if you've got uh, an HMO, for example, then a commercial loan might suit itself best to uh, getting a higher valuation looking at the investment value. But it's it's not as simple as that. There are quite a lot of criteria and people do sometimes you know come a cropper thinking they're going to get a higher valuation than perhaps they do. So I'll just point that out without going into great depth. In terms of fees, we've seen quite a change actually uh, in in fees over recent times. I think ba banks have been tightening up on their balance sheets and this sort of thing. So basically, they want more fees, and the, the across the board, the average is probably around about two thousand uh, pounds to three thousand pounds on occasion. Um, probably escalating in scale between buy to let commercial lender and uh, bridging bridging financier, and with the um, uh, the latter two, the commercial lender and the bridger, there is also these duplicate legal fees that I mentioned before. And then there's a whole host of other fees that get, you know, <laughs> the mixed, uh, mixed up. There's admin fees, valuation fees, early redemption charges. So when we're looking at any type of proposition, funding proposition, we need to look at the total, total cost of finance, as I call it, over the expected term of the investment. So that's just a pointer. And in terms of interest rates, again, we're going to start low and end up high. So buy-to-let lenders are the cheapest source of funding and the uh, bridges are the most expensive form of lending, certainly on an interest rate basis. And uh, and, and commercial lenders usually are linked to LIBOR because it's more of a bank-to-bank -bank lending product. So slightly different way in which they, they calculate charges. Then we have the repayment term. Now, um, 
Bytelet is is quite well established, and you know most of the time they're 25 years, sometimes 20 year repayment terms. Um, commercial lenders are actually lend you know from you know as little as three years, in fact, up to 25 years. So just something to keep in mind that is that um, there could be a shorter term involved. But by far the shortest term is going to be with the bridging finance or the auction finances, and that can be anything from from three months minimum. It's unlikely it's going to be three, but uh, a three month minimum up to 24 months is probably the space for a bridging lender. So, you know, you can see where things are starting to be most suited. And in terms of the repayment type, i.e., how you repay the lender back over time. You know, now the interest only option is, is more dominant in buy to let. You can still get capital repayment, but a lot of uh, investors are now looking at this interest only, and that's quite a common product with buy to let lenders. But um, with commercial loans, it's probably the other way around. There's probably more of a preference for the capital repayment to be the lead product, and then to a lesser extent, interest only. You can get both with buy to let or commercial loans, but um, you know, the mix is slightly different. Now with bridging finance, that can be quite complicated because there's all sorts of uh, things there like interest only, which you're probably aware of, but there's what's called rolled up interest. So that's basically all the interest paid on redemption. Not many lenders do that, but some do. Of course, that's great from a cash flow point of view. Not so great from a total interest point of view, because obviously you're going to be paying a lot of interest by deferring the, the repayment. And then they have, uh, sometimes, conversely, they have what's called interest deduction so from the advance. So if you take out a six-month product, they may deduct the whole six months' worth of interest from the advance. So it's extra money you've got to find at the front end. So very much, you know, check out those terms if we're looking at that route. Now, in terms of lender criteria, uh, you know, the first two categories, certainly buy to let, they're usually looking for people in, who've got a, an income outside of property income. So they're probably in employment. Um, it's sometimes a professional landlord, but predominantly in employment, uh, usually a homeowner and uh, with good credit ratings. And um, there'll be a limit on the number of properties that they have. Now, that starts to change as we move across the, the, the columns, if you like. So commercial lenders might take more of a view. Perhaps they'll take into account rental income as part of a, a minimum income requirement. Uh, perhaps they'll say, well, we're happy for you to live in a rented uh, home uh, of, your own, oh, sorry, of your own, providing you have an investment property. So, you know, perhaps a bit more flexible moving to the commercial sector. And by far the more most flexible is going to be the bridging lender or the auction financier because they're really most interested in the property and less interested in the borrower. And it's not exclusively not interested, but, you know, they're, they're going to be less interested and therefore less picky in that respect. So and, and then the other thing is really in terms of the type of property that are best suited for those types of lender. Now, standard homes in a fully lettable condition says buy to let mortgage straight away. But if uh, there's something a little bit different, perhaps there's some, you know, refurbishment works that are required and that type of thing, or maybe it's a, it's a, it's a, a property above a shop, that type of thing, commercial lenders are going to come into their own. And certainly HMOs, as I've already alluded to, may be more in the space of a commercial lender. And then as far as a bridging finance company is concerned, pretty much anything goes, really. And so, you know, that, that if you've got an unmortgageable property, i.e. it hasn't got a kitchen or something like that, then a bridging lender is potentially where you can go for, for that type of, uh, of funding. So I guess, you know, if I were to summarize the, the top tips from, from that takeaway, it's really to match the, the right finance opportunity to the right property and indeed our own set of circumstances. 
And you can probably see from some of the criteria that longer term projects are going to lend themselves to buy to let, short term to bridging finance and uh, HMOs say to commercial lending. You know, so it is a case of matching the right product. And, you know, one thing I really should point out is that the best deals are going to be available by using a finance broker, uh, but not all finance brokers are equal. So, you know, make sure if we're looking at residential buy to let or commercial or, or bridging finance that we, we go and find a broker that specializes in that area and they've got what's called whole of market coverage to get access to the best opportunities. And, and, and brokers do generally add value, but always get a recommendation is, is probably the best, the best thing I could say there. And probably my final point to make in this section is that I'm just going to make a bold statement that valuers rule the world. Um, you know, there is a bold statement. And I, I think anybody who's been involved in property investing for any period of time will know that, you know, valuers really do control what ultimately uh, gets lent out. Then second of all, credit underwriters in, in the lender. So as a as a pair, they're, they're pretty formidable and we need to work with those people um, if we're going to be successful and get valuations and the lending that we require. So just a point there. So what we're noticing, I guess, is that, you know, some of those lending solutions, they're going to present themselves as our experience grows. Now, we're probably going to start with bread and butter buy to let mortgages when we first start investing. But as we get more experience and we see more opportunities um, to invest in different types of projects, alternative projects are going to appear and therefore alternative funding sources are going to appear as well. So we're going to see, see ourselves grow in, in, that, in, that, uh, in that respect. So I'm actually a bit conscious. I, in fact, I'm, I'm probably skipping some of the things I wanted to say because it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's not going to do it justice in this episode. So I'm probably going to draw this to a close and we're going to revisit the whole subject of financing later on. But um, hopefully that's given something of, uh, of an overview of the different funding sources available, a little bit of a deeper dive into the differences between some of the mainstream funding sources that uh, constituted buy to let and uh, commercial lending and indeed bridging or auction finance. So hopefully that's uh, that's helped a little bit but in the interest of speed and trying to you know give something back to you i'm probably going to hand over to kaza now for your voice up next is your voice it's all about you and your property world today we have a listener review to share from cppp10 here is what they had to say very helpful five stars richard brown the host is very engaging and professional. The podcast is very structured with a lot of great information and insights. Well done. Thank you for that great review CPPP10, we really appreciate that. Back to you now Richard. And now, where you can go for more great resources, with a shout out. So just before the, the shout out, I just want to say a quick apology to Julie uh, in Chiswick. I know you left me a voicemail and I prepared an answer for today's show, but I'm going to have to defer it till next week. So if you wouldn't mind tuning in next week, I will gladly share your question, which is all about pensions. So uh, sorry about that, but uh, probably too much, uh, too little time available today. So in terms of the shout out today, I'm going to keep it bang on topic and try and uh, try to bridge the reference a little bit. I've got uh, mortgage calculators on my mind. Obviously, we've been talking about finance and mortgages and, and that sort of thing for investment property. I've, I haven't just got one, I've got three. So I've got mortgage calculators from Property Tribes, 
Property 118 and Money Facts to share with you today. So they're all going to be linked in the show notes. So head on over to them and you'll, you'll find those. So just one thing, some of those uh, partners actually are linked to uh, mortgage brokers in their own right. So just keep that in mind that um, they may link through to uh, a mortgage broker. So you may have your own broker or recommendation that you want to pursue. Just sort of flag that in, in any case. But one word, always look for whole of market brokers. That's ideal. Uh, and if not, then certainly those who specialize in the area that you're particularly looking to invest. So, so basically we've been looking, you know, at the money side of things today uh, and in terms of funding the investment. And of course, you know, so much about property investment is either enabled or facilitated by access to adequate and uh, indeed appropriate funding. And I hope that's given a flavor admittedly probably on a whistle-stop basis uh, for this uh, this topic for you to, to, to draw upon. So uh, talking of drawing, we're actually drawing towards the end of this first series of the Property Voice podcast and um, what I'd be very much interested in is what subject areas you probably be like to do for me to cover in subsequent series and I'm trying to group series in terms of a collection of, of subjects and so we can go into a little bit more depth I kind of alluded to finance as being a big area and I think we can go into a lot more depth in that but but what are you interested in hearing about I I would I would be keen and if we can incorporate it into a future series we'd certainly like to so drop us a note get in touch that'd be great to hear the show notes are going to be on the website as always so please check that out and, and do start a conversation with us but once again, I'd just like to say thank you very much for listening. It really may, means a lot to us because pulling the show together is, is quite an effort, actually. Um, you know, the research and the time involved and the production team behind us. There's, um, there's a lot to get through. So we really do appreciate you listening, but we also appreciate your engagement. So please do get engaged. But right now, for another week on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.